church family, if you have your copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open up to the book of Exodus chapter 19. And uh, we're going to continue and sort of finish the last half of this chapter. Uh, As you're finding your place, we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 25. Um, I don't know how many of you uh, growing up were this type of child. This really kind of characterized who I was and really who my brother was as well. Uh, But we were the type of children that if you were to raise us, that if your parents told you not to do something, it would trigger something like deep down within our hearts that it would make us want to do that. Carvin was that kind of child, obviously, as well. And he turned out to be an attorney, so that makes sense, right? Um, there, There are things sometimes that people will tell us not to do and it makes us want to do it. Or if they tell us what to do, we tend to want to do the opposite. So growing up, if mom said, hey, don't touch the stove, the stove is hot. We were the type of siblings that would go and we wanted to touch the stove. If mom and dad said, hey, don't run fast, we were the type that would wanna run fast. If they said run slow, we'd want to run quickly. This past week, we took our family down to America's greatest water park uh, down in Schlitterbahn in New Braunfels, Texas. And we were towards the end of the day and Duke, my littlest son, we're on this slide and he's playing with cousins and he takes off running at one point. And I said, Duke, don't run, you're gonna fall. And so he says, okay, dad, thanks. And he walks real quick and then he goes down the slide and I turn my back and I'm sort of watching him out of the corner of my eye and he rounds the corner back up the stairs and I hear the, the pitter patter of these feet and they're running just as fast as they can. And then when I turn around and look at him, he gets right next to me and then Duke's feet just slide out from underneath him. And I looked at him in a gentle, loving way as any dad would do. And I just simply said, I told you so, son, you're gonna fall. We have this mentality within our life that oftentimes if we're told what to do and we really don't want to do it, uh, we tend to do the opposite. Psychologists have a term for this. They call it psychological reactance. And what this means is, is that when our freedom is threatened, when we feel like our personal autonomy is undermined in some way, do the thing that you don't want to do, then it makes us and it triggers deep within our really sinful nature to do the very opposite of what we were told was right and, and what to do. Well, in Exodus 19, we have an illustration of this as a group of people have to be reminded by God, at least on two encounters, to, and how they are to approach the Lord and what not to do as the Lord descends down to the mountain. And so in Exodus 19, if you're just joining with us, uh, the Israelites have been delivered from the hand of Pharaoh. They find themselves at Mount Sinai. They are sort of nomads, if you will, sojourners in a foreign land, wandering throughout the wilderness. And Exodus 19 is the chapter right before God comes down and he gives the law. And he tells them how specifically they are to act and interact with one another, how they are to do ceremonial and civil things. It's right before he gives them the Ten Commandments, which perhaps are the most famous part of the law. But in case you're just joining us from last week, and seven days ago was a long time ago, uh, our text really is verse 16 through 25, but I want to read briefly for us verses 12 through 13 so we can remember how the story is unfolding. And so in verse 12, it says, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, take care not to go up into the mountain, nor touch the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. So if you go up to it and you touch it, you're going to be killed. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. Now we jump to verse 16, our text today. 
And so it says on the third morning, on the morning of the third day, there were, listen to the imagery that exists here. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp began to tremble. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain, it trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in the midst of the thunder. Now what I want you to see here in this moment, what the Israelites witnessed that day was absolutely one of the most incredibly terrifying displays of divine power that anyone has ever experienced up to this point and perhaps ever since will then until Jesus comes back. In this one singular moment, you have all the forces and all the powers of, of nature slamming against this mountainside as the people of Israel stand and they tremble before him. The lightning and the thunder, the darkness and the smoke, the fire and the earthquake all at once. Perhaps we've experienced some of these moments like this, but typically we experience them in singular fashion. We can come upon a, a thunderstorm or a lightning storm, or perhaps you've been in the midst of an earthquake or experienced even the high winds of a tornado, but relatively speaking, not one of us perhaps in this room has experienced the lightning and the thunder and the darkness and the rocks that were on fire and the smoke that permeated the air as the ground began to shake. And so if you can just imagine with me for just a moment, on the third day, they begin to see the rocks blazing with fire. They begin to belch smoke out from under the rocks as if from a fiery hot furnace. The mountain not only looked scary and it looked on fire, but the mountain sounded scary. There were these constant blasts and these booms of these deep Texas thunderstorms, if you will, and the lightning and this incessant blowing of this trumpet. Many of us have been in, a, in an orchestra where they've performed and we hear that incessant trumpet blowing over all the strings and, and perhaps out of tune and, and in his own world, but this blowing of this trumpet becomes louder and louder as God becomes nearer and nearer on Mount Sinai. And so it not only looked scary and on fire, it sounded as if something terrible was happening. And as the fire begins to rise in the midst of the, of the smoke and, and the smoke is there, scholars would say that there was this sharp, almost biting smell, bitterly pungent, irritating to the eyes and the nose as the smoke was in the air and the Lord God descends in the cloud. And in the midst of all of this, as the mountain is on fire, and the lightning and the thunder crack and the smoke rises, the ground begins to shake as they know that the Lord is coming violently amongst their feet, not just a rumble, the ground beneath their feet began to move back and forth in a violent manner. And we see in verse 16 that it says that all of the people in the camp, they tremble. And what that means in the Hebrew, when it says they trembled, what it most literally means, it means they were terrified as unto death. 
As they encounter God, as he descends upon the mountain, there was utter terror that reigned in their hearts as they could see and they could taste and they could smell and they could touch, engaging all of the senses that exist there. They were terrified to death. And not only were the people of Israel terrified, but we know that in Hebrews 12, 21, we know that Moses, their leader, was also terrified. For it says the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I too am trembling with fear. And so in this moment, as God descends and he offers them his presence in this form and in this fashion, it utterly terrifies and it scares the people to death as he appears in the midst of this. Now there's a couple of things that I want us to remember from previous weeks and, and the Lord God tells Moses, he tells them to consecrate the priests and we're gonna see him reiterate this truth again to set your people apart, to not come up to the mountain or surely the Lord will deal with you, surely you will die. And so there are some things that I want us to, to gather from this brief encounter here in this moment that I wanna remind us of that many of us know all too well. Number one is this, God appears in this way and he reveals himself in this way to reveal his glory to them. We've rightly defined over previous weeks that when we talk about the glory of God, what we mean by that is we mean the display or the manifestation of his holiness. When God shows his holiness and his righteousness, that is his glory on display. And so if we say as a people, hey, we want to glorify God in all that we do, what that means is, is that we want to display the righteousness and the holiness of God for people to see. We want to put that in a tangible way where, where God would see that in his people as we obey, and as we walk by faith, and as we worship with our, our lifestyle and all that we do, this mountain, it reveals God's glory. It displays his greatness. Romans 1.20 says, forever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Though everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and his divine nature so that they are without excuse. What that means is, is that, that God in, in every which way is revealing himself all throughout creation. And in this moment, he's revealing himself to the Israelites through all of his creation. He's revealing them in the big things and he's revealing himself in the small things. So we can go to the, the mountains of Colorado and see the continental divide. And we can be in awe of his majesty and how big he is. Or we can travel to the Pacific Ocean or, or somewhere on the beach and, and we can see the vastness of the ocean and see how wonderful and how grand he is. Or we can look outside on our lawns and, and we can see the intricacy of the trees that exist in our front and our backyards. Or we can look at a small little ant pile or a hive of bees or insects or see the particles that we can't see with the human eye. And we can see that all of those things from the big all the way to the small are revealing who God is. And it just so happens that in Exodus 19, God reveals his glory in a rather big way. You see, the mountain revealed God's glory, but it also teaches us that this scene, this moment was designed to convey the majesty and the power of God. 
I don't want you to miss in this moment what these descriptions actually mean when he describes the fire and the cloud and the thunder and all of these things. When it talks about the thunder that exists and the ground shaking beneath their feet, what this is meant to do is to point to the power, to the force, to the omnipotence of who God is, that he is all controlling, all ruler, all powerful in all things, that he controls the, the mightiness of the thunder and how it sounds and how the ground shakes beneath their feet, this dark cloud that he descends on. It, it symbolizes the mystery of God, the Godhead, the perplexity of, of who he is. That he's revealed enough of himself according to his word for us to know him and, and, and to walk faithfully with him and to lead us unto salvation. But as Paul echoes elsewhere within the New Testament, there are still mysteries that we do not know. And, and the reason why that's significant is because we will never, this side of the cross, ever truly, fully appreciate and know God the way we will when we enter into his presence in eternity. There will always be something else for us to discover. There will always be something else for him to reveal for the rest of our lives. The fire. When we see fire throughout the Old Testament, we know that fire often symbolizes holiness and it, it signifies purity and who he is. We know that in the, in the cold, dark winter months that for some of us, what we enjoy doing is grabbing a book and, and, and nesting up next to the fire with a blanket and the warmth that it provides and, and the comfort that it brings because of, of what it is. But we also know that if we get too close to the fire or if we sit in front of it too long, it begins to warm us to a degree in which we become uncomfortable or the fire, if not careful and if not tamed, that it can burn us. And so that fire, it symbolizes the holiness of God, the trumpet that exists, the sound that descends on the mountain that gets louder and louder, the closer that God gets. That trumpet is meant to, to be like a herald. And when you announce the king entering into the presence of the court, it was typically signified by the blowing of a trumpet. That someone significant has descended, that someone significant has entered into the room. And so the trumpet becomes louder and louder and it emphasizes his sovereignty and his supremacy, his dominance, the, the announcement of a coming king. And so this whole scene in Exodus 19 was designed to convey the majesty and the power of God. But as we said earlier, we noticed that the Lord gives some pretty strict instructions for his people. He says, do this and don't do that. And we talked about last week how theologians coined these terms, eminence and, and transcendence, meaning this, God has descended down to the mountain to be with his people, to be near to his people, but yet at the same time, he's transcended. And what that means is that he is wholly set apart from you and I. That in his holiness, he, he is distinct from, the creator is distinct from the things that, that he creates. And so he descends down into the mountain. And, and what this means is, is that he's teaching us the proper way that we are to respond to God's glory. And that is always with reverence and with awe of who he is. Not what culture would often teach us that Jesus is my, my friend but rather the larger truth that, that Jesus is not my friend because I'm not an equal to him, yet at the same time, Jesus is a friend to me. And there's a great distinction between those two notions. 
that I'm not equal with God. He is not equal with me. He, he is above me in every which way. Though he is Emmanuel, he is imminent. He is a friend to me. He is near me in my time of need. And I can call upon his name and, and he saves and, and he delivers and he hears and he listens though he is still set apart and though he is yet still distinct. For John says in Revelation 4.8, he says this about the Lord God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. He goes on in chapter five of Revelation 5.13 and he says, speaking of Jesus to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And so the reality of that verse is you and I will not sit on the throne. You and I are not the lamb. You and I are not the ones who have earned the right to receive praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. Only he is. Because he is wholly distinct from us. Verse 20 of Exodus 19 goes on and he says, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses. Now within the Old Testament uh, academia world, there's a whole bunch of debate on this little verse right here in verse 21 and what does the text actually mean when it says the Lord spoke to Moses? And there are some who would contend that do not hold to the authority of Scripture or the sufficiency of Scripture. They would speculate that in this moment, what God did was, was he spoke to Moses through some kind of inward private inspiration. Like he spoke privately to the, to the heart of Moses. And, and this language that we see of thunder and lightning, this is just really poetic license. It's, it's the way for the writer of Exodus to, to portray God speaking in a very poetic and creative and artistic way. The poetic truth of thunder and lightning, these are just simply metaphors for how God speaks. Now we ask the question, well, why would it be important? And why would we ask the question, well, well what does that mean? The Lord says to Moses. Because the implication here is in this moment that many of those who would say that the Lord spoke to Moses inwardly and not audibly are the same people who would say that the Bible made up of all the books and all the truth that exists is just a man-made book. Written by a, guy, a group of guys that were, were good men of moral, of moral standing that were trying to do the right thing, but it's not actually the word of God. And so the truth is that, that if we, the reason why we ask this question is because we need to know if God has spoken and not spoken to Moses, then God has most certainly not spoken to us today. But if, if perhaps truthfully God has spoken to Moses, then we can say definitively today that God has spoken to his people. If he has not, then what we have is just a collection of, of good moral teachings that we should abide by. Has he or has he not given us his word? Has he or has he not given us truth and, and propositions to, to explain his work in human history? Has he or has he not proclaimed the message, the true message of salvation in this book? Or perhaps maybe there is another way. Is truth really objective? If God has not spoken, then truth is merely just subjective. Meaning it's just relative to, to your experience and, and perhaps your personal opinion and what you think about it. Is there such thing as, as absolute truth? And friends, I would contend to you today that if God has not spoken, then we cannot ever know what is absolute and what is right. But today, what 
what we hold at this church is that we believe God spoke to Moses. We believe scripture doesn't contradict itself. For later, Moses goes on to remind the people in Deuteronomy 5.4 and he, and he says this to them. The Lord spoke to you face to face, out of the fire, on the mountain. 5.22, the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire, the cloud and the deep darkness. The Lord, Moses tells them, the Lord spoke to you audibly. You heard his voice. And so just as Moses heard the voice of the Lord, so did the people. And so what did the Lord say to him? Well, the text continues on in verse 21. And he says, go down and I want you to remind the people of what I've already told you. And here's what he says. We've heard this before. Warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look. And, and many of them perish, lest they get caught up in the moment and get crowdsourced, if you will, and get caught up in this frenzy and try to rush the mountain to be in the presence of the God, lest many of them perish. Verse 22, and let the priest who come near to the Lord, let them consecrate themselves, clean themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And so Moses says to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself, you've already warned us, God. You already said, don't do these things. Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And then the Lord says to him in verse 24, yes, but go down and come up and bring Aaron with you. Do not let the priests and the people break out though to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. In other words, I've warned them twice. And if they defy me and don't listen to me, I will break out against them. And what he's saying is, I will follow through with the threat that I issued earlier that I'll, I'll take their life if they don't take my commands seriously. And so Moses goes down in verse 25 to the people and he tells them. You see, God repeats the warning and he declares the mountain holy. And he gently, I would say, reminds the people of his earlier command. And, and he has come in this moment because he is about to set up and he is about to give them his law. To speak to them what he expects, how they are to live their life, how they are to govern their life. And he expects, listen to me, every time God speaks, he demands a response from his people. And we respond rather by walking in obedience or we respond by walking in disobedience. But one way or the other, there, there's a response given. Either we believe God in what he has said or we don't. And if we believe God and, and do what he says, the Bible calls that not just obedience, but he, but he calls that our, our act of worship. And essentially what Exodus 19 is, is this is, it's this imploring of the people of God to listen to how God has prescribed. They can approach God. In other words, what he's doing is he's beginning to set up and dictate how they are as a people to interact with him, how they are, in other words, to worship before him. And he's about to, in Exodus 20 and 21 and 22, to give this whole laundry list of things that they can and, and cannot do. And so I want to say a couple of things about worship, because this is essentially about worship and how the people of God can approach him. Number one is this, the better we know God through his word, the more genuine our worship will be. The better we know him, the more we study and, and learn and seek to be transformed in our hearts, not just to puff up with knowledge and, and to gain theology and to, to know all the big words, but, but the more we study and humble ourselves before this, the better we know his word, the more genuine our worship will be. Why? Because worship is a response to the word. 
Worship is a response to the word. Worship is not a response to, to the music. It's not a response to the, the musicians or the, or the style of worship even, but rather wholeheartedly, according to scripture, worship is always a response to the word. God speaks and he reveals and then he expects his people to respond. But don't buy this lie right here. Don't believe the notion that just because you know things, that it automatically transforms who you are. You see, there's a caveat to that statement, the better we know God through his word, the more genuine our worship would be. And that caveat is this, that Christian maturity is growing in humility and amazement towards the God that we seek. In other words, what that looks like is the more I, I learn about who God is according to this, his revealed will according to scripture. We, we often look at Bible study as if we're taking whey protein or maybe some of you taking steroids trying to get bigger. And the idea is that the more protein I consume, the bigger I'm gonna get, the more that I lift weights. And so the more that I lift, the heavier I lift and the more protein I eat, that it's gonna replenish my muscles and I'm gonna get a little bit bigger and, and bigger and bigger. I'm gonna grow. And oftentimes we translate things like that into our study. So if I know God, if I know his word, if I can quote all the Bible verses, if I'm a PhD in systematic or biblical theology or eschatology or soteriology or, or harmatology or whatever the ologies are that exist, that if I'm an expert in though somehow that I'm going to grow up and be bigger and bigger and badder. But here's the truth of the gospel and what actually happens. The more I learn about who God is and the more I understand his word, I actually don't grow up and become bigger. I actually grow down and I become smaller. But the more I understand who God is, the more I understand how small I actually am. The more I understand how great he is, the more I understand how great I'm not. The more I know about God, the more I begin to understand how little I actually do know about God. The more I'm amazed at his glory and his holiness, the more I'm in awe, the more I worship in a spirit of reverence and an understanding of who he is, the, the smaller I become and the smaller, listen to me, the smaller I feel. And what that does is when it's coupled with humility and amazement towards him, listen to me, in the kingdom of God, if we grasp that truth, as we understand the more we learn about God, the, the more we realize how much we don't know, what it should do in our worship is this, is that Christians therefore then should be the most loving, the most kind, the most compassionate, the most merciful, the most joyful, the most contented group of people that exist anywhere. Why? Because we know our God. And we're filled with his, his spirit in our life. There's no more arrogance or pugnacious attitudes that exist. There's no more condescension that exists, no more strife begins to cease. You know, one of the things that I think is helpful in understanding Exodus 18 is we read passages like this and we go, yeah, but God's not descending from a mountain. He's not speaking in clouds of smoke and fire. He's not rattling the world and then blowing trumpets and hearing us. And, and the truth is we, we really don't want to experience an Exodus 18 experience, 19 experience. 
One, because I, I, I don't wanna be terrified like it's described to people. And, and the truth is we don't have to, why? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn as we conclude to Hebrews chapter 12, because Hebrews chapter 12, and I'll have it on the screen, it helps inform what we read here in Exodus 19. In the first half of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 20, 21, it describes the Exodus experience. I want you to hear with me what what the writer of Hebrews says, and then I wanna read the last couple of verses and give it some perspective. He says this, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest, a storm. You're not before a sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages would be spoken to them. You're you're not here terrified for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but instead, friend, this is you right here. Verse 22, he says, but you, have come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and feastal gatherings and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now I want you to see what just happened But the writer of Hebrews helps us understand Exodus 19. He contrasts the two experiences. And the contrast here in Exodus 19 is between law versus Hebrews 12, which is the gospel, between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. One mountain was dark and stormy, but the other is a city bright and shining with joy. One was a place of fear and danger. There were warnings and admonitions and the other Zion is a place of peace, is a place of safety and refuge. One is blazed with fire and blasted of this ungodly trumpet that grows louder and louder and louder. And the other in Zion, there is a welcome party of all of those who have gone before, a feast of, of angels that exist here in that moment to celebrate your entrance into the heavenly city. Sinai was designed, God said, don't go up to the mountain or you will die. It was designed to keep people away. But yet Zion in this moment was designed to draw people close. And the way we're meant to see Exodus 19 is it's helpful with Hebrews 12 as we're able to bring the two together where Sinai symbolizes law, Zion, it symbolizes grace. That no man can be saved by the law, but any man can be saved by grace, the unmerited favor of God. The law confronts us with judgment and commands and provides a standard that we cannot live up to. And yet grace, the grace of Jesus, it gives us forgiveness and atonement and it gives us salvation. And so we're not meant to live with Mount Sinai in mind, but rather we're meant to live with Zion on our lips of what it will be, not what it was, what's to come. This is why we labor, friend. 
This is why we go and tell those that are far from God because we, we want them not to experience a Sinai moment, but we want them to experience a Zion moment where they will be in the presence of our God, where Jesus is their great reward, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. The Bible says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If I believe in my heart, Jesus died for my sins, that God raised him up, that Jesus was who he says he was. Anyone who calls upon him just repents of their sin and believes, the Bible says will be saved. If you're here today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord, can I implore you to call upon his name and let him save you. There's no magical incantation. There's no magical prayer. It's just simply, Jesus, would you save me from my sins? Would you save me? And let the spirit of God work in your life and If you do that today, if you say, Jesus, would you just save me? It's important that after you do that, you come tell someone. So we can talk with you and work with you through the process of what it means to to really repent of your sins and what it means to grow in your faith. And we have faithful ministers and elders and teachers and and people are here that would love to come alongside you and, and walk with you and grow you into maturity. Would you come? Would you pray?